Justine. Hannah. Nick. Hannah. Justine. Nick. Samantha. Samantha. Oh my God, Samantha. (laughs) (laughs) That's she. Um, It's her. Her hair. (laughs) Yeah. So this is, um, this is Samantha. Can I hold her? Yes, please. Please describe for our listeners what you've got in your hands I have not held an American Girl doll in a really long time. This is actually, I feel emotional. (laughs) Wow. Look at the teeth. So this is a Samantha doll who has, I would say, seen better days. She's seen better days. I believe she received a a small haircut at some point. Her hair is... um, It does look like she got a haircut and bangs specifically. She maybe had an emotional... she's got bangs. She does. Samantha has bangs. All right. Did she get those at the McCarthy salon? Okay. (laughs) It does look like she's wearing a uh, off-brand dress. This is not off-brand. It's it not? is off-era, though. Can mm. you guess where that dress... Kirsten. Yes. Yes. <laughs> wow. And um, so... A little loose in the leg. A little. <laughs> this is... Un- okay. The, I have someone else with me here. Oh, Kirsten. Yeah. Hey. But she's she's wearing a really anachronistic outfit. Yeah, this is a modern American Girl dress. This is like a dress, uh, uh, an outfit that I would have been jealous of in middle school and like wished it came in. In my size. Exactly. Exactly. Wait, did Kirsten work at the North Face? (laughs) (laughs) And then there's this you'll be familiar with. Yeah, this is Samantha's OG outfit and with a really nice locket. Does it open? It does. Oh, yeah. It totally does. I didn't have Samantha. But, uh, yeah, so we've got some dolls in the studio for this episode of Civics 101. So so did you pick Samantha because of the hair? I picked Samantha. So Samantha, for those who don't know, has brunette hair or brown, as some people might call it. Um, I also had that kind of hair, and I still do as a child. Um, But also I picked Samantha, to be totally honest with you, because um, she has a gold locket, which you just pointed out. And uh, the original doll, you were supposed to cut out from this teeny tiny piece of paper these pictures of her dead parents because she's an orphan because she's an orphan to put in the locket and uh i in trying to cut out that heart with not the best of fine motor skills totally botched it and so samantha's locket remained forever no memories forever which is really upsetting yep um everyone this is justine paradise by the way a podcast outside in fame and also other fame other fame i'm famous for many things yes (laughs) Hi, thanks for having me. Hello, um, I'm Hannah McCarthy, as you know. This is Nick Capodice. Hi there, just over here. <laughs> and this is Civics 101. And today, believe it or not, we are talking dolls. That is so powerful <laughs> to me. It takes me so right back. <laughs> yeah. Oh my god. This is you're hearing music uh, from a, a computer game that Justine and I were very fond of, wherein you stage plays and it's the American girl dolls and you've got like their bedrooms and the outdoors <sighs> and the kitchen. This is one of the many offshoots of the American girl doll brand and um, it was it was probably the weirdest one, I would say. It was super weird and you could type in their their lines for the plays they were doing 
and a computer would read it. Nick's pretty good at computer voices. Oh, yeah. I was hoping you'd ask me to do a little fake computer Just voice. do a little, like, give us an example. Read a line. Tia Dolores was a good teacher. She showed Clara a faster way to knit the heel on a sock. She showed Francisca how to sew a patch over a hole so that it hardly showed at all. <laughs> that's exactly, that's exactly what it was like. That's what it was like. You, I think you could select like male voice, female voice, maybe even British voice. There were some wow. really good ones. There, there, there are actually characters Cockney. with Maria was Cockney one of the robots. names. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Can I interrupt for a sec? Sure. What is going on here? (laughs) Well, Nick, to my understanding, you had neither dolls nor toys of any kind as a child. Yeah, that's right. Basically. Uh, And either way, you would not have had these toys that are here on the studio table um, because these came into the world in 1986. Your childhood was prior to that. I would say my childhood extended past <laughs> 1986, okay. but that's just my opinion. All right. I need to hear more about like the lack of toy, the rocks in sticks you apparently played with, but yeah. for another time. Another time. <laughs> uh, but for Justine and myself, and so many people that I know, these dolls, while they might just seem like dolls to you, although, Nick, do these seem like just dolls to you? I just gotta know. No, they do. They, they have something about them. Are you just saying that? No, I'm not really just saying that? that because of you. I'm saying that because I can, I can, I can feel something. I've never actually seen a doll like this. Interesting. I also didn't know that dolls close their eyes when you lay them down. Okay, well, that's it's a big part of them. That's a lot. Of, a lot of dolls go to sleep when you lay them down. But anyway, um, it, you know, it was not just my childhood that was influenced by these dolls and playing with them. But these dolls came with these books, some of which I've also brought into the studio. Uh, and these represent like a really engrossing encounter with American history. That's what came along with all of these dolls. And today, Nick, we're going to talk about all of this. You can feel free to ask whatever questions you have. But first, I just want to talk a little bit about why we're doing this. Uh, Justine, you were the person who came up with the idea to make a Civics 101 episode about American Girl dolls. Can I ask, like, do you have a why? Was there a reason? Oh, I mean... <laughs> I would, I guess I would just say that these books, like, I remember where in the library they were uh, when I was growing up. And I just remember it was learning about history without them, like, saying, let's learn about some history. It was just a real, like, the stories were so good, but it was how, I had such a really strong memory of, of the books themselves and the dolls were such a big part of my life. But I also just was kind of wondering years later like we're revisiting so many pillars of our childhood like was it a good history education i don't know (laughs) did they do a good job at communicating american history or american civics and i just thought that you should look into it for us yeah and so so i did um because for me it was it was the sort of same thing and it was this like the first foray into american history that actually stuck for me yeah um like i thought about it i had a, a vague understanding of various areas of American history and I can attribute that to remembering the stories of these girls throughout history. I also say so to answer that again this is the summer of the doll you know Barbie Mm -hmm. is in the air everywhere this was the summer of the doll Um, but we're also having this little renaissance of American Girl as well I'm seeing it pop up everywhere yeah Um, so that's why and I wanted you to explore 
what like, is it actually any good? Did they did a good job? Did they do a good job of teaching us history? This is a good question. And one of the guests you'll hear from later described this in a way that I thought was really interesting, which is that, like women in their 30s looking back to these dolls. The love of these dolls and their histories is unironic, mm. you know, and I think there is a little bit of with the response to Barbie. There is a like a smidge of irony. It smacks of a little bit of ugh, but like and there's true love there as well. Like I don't want to dismiss it out of hand, but there's something about these dolls. The, why do I still have these? Because my mom was like, I'm going to get rid of your toys. And I was like, well, you can't get rid of the American Girl dolls, though, because, you know, there's something about them. Something about them. Okay, so what is covered by these history books, Justine, that you're mentioning? I just want to give our listeners a sense. Uh, okay, so we're talking about these dolls, right? But they're not just dolls. These are dolls with, as you said, Justine, uh a history, right, through these stories, but they've got this whole rich world built around them, right? So they've got a story, a family, a family tree. There's a whole history there. Uh, they've got friends. They've got places they go. They've got personalities, struggles, etc. So first, uh, Kirsten Larson, the pioneer experience. Uh, these these books also cover New Mexico prior to the Mexican-American War, Oregon prior to permanent white settlement and the Nez Perce people in what became Oregon, uh, Samantha, the Progressive Era, World War II, enslavement, the Civil War, the Great Depression, the Revolutionary War, the War of 1812, mm. oh <laughs> believe it or not, comes up at a certain point, which Does is it like, really? it's a little funny. Um, so this is an education company. We can say that. American Girl is an education company or brand. It's also a toy company. Yeah. And one of the many questions that I had going into this was, you know, we might talk about this endlessly, Justine, but are there other people out there who uh, want to and can talk about American Girl dolls? Oh, my gosh. This stuff is so fun to think about. I enjoy it, but I'm a historian, so I may be biased. So I actually started studying American Girl when I was doing a master's program in the 1990s. Sorry, I know I've been talking a lot. I, have, I love this. I mean, as it turns out, uh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> very much yes. V- like, very much yes, yes, yes. So, Hannah, uh, can we just get something out of the way first? Um, which doll were you? Mm-hmm. Hey, hold on. What do you mean? As in, like, which doll do you identify with as a person? It's like, which Power Ranger were you? <laughs> or which Ninja Turtle? Leonardo, clearly. Except so. that this is much more important, I think, American Girl doll. Yeah, it carries more weight. Um, so I identified very strongly with Kirsten. So she's a pioneer. She's a homesteader. She wears a candle, crown, candle crown for St. Lucia Day. Swedish. St. Lucia Day. Um, she's got a pet dog who gets stung by a bumblebee. I don't know if you remember <laughs> that. I remember that very fondly. So that was that was me. I think I, I was Felicity, and that maybe was because it was the first doll I got, but she was just sort of spunky and, like, tomboyish, and that's that was a serious uh, yeah. pattern in my childhood. And she wears, there's, a, like, one of the covers of her books is, so Felicity's a colonial-era Yeah, Revolutionary person, War. And she's wearing pants and riding a horse in one of the covers of her book. She always, like, steals away in the night to go ride the horse. Yeah, so. yeah, it's, like, really cool. Um, Nick, I don't think you have a doll identity because oh. that that would be your choice, of course. But like, I would assign you Felicity too, probably. <gasps> Molly. No, I, I, Molly's <laughs> a really good one. I'll take Molly. Yeah. <laughs> well, I appreciate that, and I agree with it or disagree with it once I figure <laughs> out what it means. But uh, <laughs> the point I'm going to jump in here and ask is, uh, while I see this foot and a half long doll here in front of me, <laughs> what a weird her way to put it. <laughs> elaborate doll dress. 
I do not fully understand what it is I'm actually looking at. Like, what is American Girl? Great place to start. I'm going to try to tell it as a little bit of like a story. (laughs) So that'll help me keep it in order. Okay. This is Molly Rosner. She's the author of Playing with History, American Identities, and Children's Consumer Culture. Mm. Children's Consumer Culture. That kind of hurts a little bit. It's kind of the invention of childhood, I feel like. The sale of a <laughs> the sale of a child's soul. Yeah. In 1986, Pleasant T. Rowland, the founder of the Pleasant Company, sent out about half a million catalogs across the country, addressed specifically to nine-year-old girls. <laughs> they were large, oversized catalogs with um, thick paper. They were really beautifully put together, and they were filled with um, life-size pictures of these 18 inch tall dolls. So you could really immerse yourself as a kid in this piece of mail that came just for you. It had letters at the beginning addressed to the young consumer. And it was the only way to purchase these dolls was through the mail. It was a very quaint and personal feeling kind of marketing. Guerrilla marketing to nine-year-olds. I I remember those catalogs. I remember them viscerally and fondly. Yes. Um, And this marketing absolutely worked like i don't know why i received american girl catalogs but i eventually did they found you they found me so the story goes that pleasant roland her name is pleasant pleasant also by the way she's number 77 on the forbes 100 of america's self-made women really wow yeah that's just really interesting she built this whole brand right it's like wow how much money did she have well okay (laughs) so here's the story right so the story goes that pleasant roland was visiting historical Williamsburg uh, and was inspired. Same. Yeah. You know, <laughs> for good relatable. or for ill. Also, I, this tracks. Yeah. 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 Um, so that was like, that was one thing in her mind. She also apparently was one day out buying dolls for her nieces and noticed that the only dolls available really for her young girls were Barbie and Cabbage Patch. Um, so kids basically had like two options. They could play grown up pretending to be this like independent, idealized lady. Or they could play grown up pretending to be a parent caring for this like lumpy baby. And I think we should say that porcelain dolls that looked like children definitely did exist at the time. Yeah. But Pleasant made dolls that you could drop without breaking. Like those dolls were sort of up on the shelf, you know? Yeah. Um, But you know, there was like, it was like be a mom or like, or play with this like, frankly, kind of sexy lady. So you wondered, you know, like where... Did, like, did she have a bunch of money? Just, yeah. She has a bunch of money now. She's ended up selling her brand for millions and millions of dollars down the line. We'll talk about that in brief. Uh, but she had a bunch of money because she'd written successful kids' textbooks. That was what she'd been doing. Mm. Um, so she thought to herself, you know, what if I created historical dolls who don't look like grown women? They don't look like babies. These dolls look like <laughs> young girls. And these girls live in and they represent these seminal eras of American history. And from there, three dolls were born. Molly, Kirsten, and Samantha were born. Quick bios, by the way, I think we should do. Yeah. Molly McIntyre. A schemer and a dreamer growing up in Illinois during World War II. Molly has glasses. Which I, I, like, truly, I think that passed for inclusivity in the late (laughs) 80s. Yeah, so enlightened. Then then Samantha Parkington, uh, in our presence, she lives in Mount Bedford, New York. Mount Bedford, New York. Yeah, (laughs) Mount Bedford. There's a Bedford, New York... And there's a Bedford Avenue in New York, and there's a Mount Kisco, but to the best of my knowledge, there is no Mount Bedford. Well, they are dolls. 
Okay. These are dolls. Um, the, the, the point here is that Samantha is supposed to live in like a really fancy town north of Manhattan. Samantha is rich. It is the dawn of the progressive era, and she's living with her grand Mary because, as previously mentioned, her parents have died. She is an orphan. Uh, she is headstrong, climbs trees, sneaks around. Yeah, a lot of these characters, either they're explicitly called tomboys or yeah. it's like, you know, nodded to like, they're not acting the way that quote unquote girls should act. Anyway, but with Samantha, she has the frilly clothes. Like, she's the dolliest of dolls. There's also so much of a fantasy about being an orphan in all children's yes. literature. I don't know what it is, but Samantha fit in that. Uh, but then we have uh, Kirsten Larson, immigrant from Sweden who ends up in Minnesota in the 1850s, homesteading on the plains and helping mama with the new baby. That's right. I think the baby's name is Britta, or Brita, probably Brita. 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 All right, so we've got it, right? Three historically oriented dolls to launch. They come complete with a staggering array of accessories and clothing. The catalogs go out. The fact that it was mail-order catalogs and the price point of these dolls made it pretty clear that there was a specific intended audience of upper-middle-class young girls with parents who may be concerned with the lessons of history and um, multicultural American identity. So these dolls each had to do with historical eras. And the original logo for the Pleasant Company was a kind of sepia-tinted maroon silhouette of a young girl reading a book with her doll next to her. Um, So reading was a really crucial and foundational part of the the branding. And those books were each, you know, they were supposedly (laughs) meant to teach the young reader history. But within those books, you could find very detailed descriptions and plots, entire plots that revolved around merchandise. So the catalog was filled with clothing and bedding and accessories, food um, that were influenced by historical um, materials and trends. I mean, they were plastic for the most part, but they mimicked different historical eras. But those items appeared in the stories, every single one of them. So you weren't purchasing just a, um, a lunch pail for your doll. You were p- purchasing part of the story of her bringing her lunch and sharing it with her friend. Um, you were partaking in that history in a really active way by purchasing it. <laughs> by the way, I deeply deeply to the point that maybe I still do um, wanted <laughs> Kirsten's really beautiful wooden lunchbox it had like cut out reliefs remember and it had these like a teeny tiny apple and cheese and sausage and bread from Kirsten learns a lesson that's she takes right it to school which is right there in the one room schoolhouse I never by the way acquired this particular element of history this is this is interesting to engage with history as a consumer by purchasing it yeah which I don't think, and we'll talk a little bit more about this later, Justine. As a kid, I didn't think to myself, like, I'm buying history. I just, no. I wanted it. But in retrospect, you didn't just have the books, right? You also wanted the stuff that you saw in the books. But there's a divide there. It's something about when you look at old children's books illustrations, 
of the books you read then, there's some kind of feeling that happens when you look at the, the blue of the blueberries in that book. And it's the same when I think about those objects, about yeah. these dolls. I totally agree. Totally. Yeah, I had that for all the, you know, I had these books about gnomes and fairies and they had these depictions of food in them that I was like, I must eat that the plum. Food. Yes, the food was so significant. Your whole life you're chasing that plum and the you never catch it. The beginning of Felicity, which we haven't talked about yet, but is in her father's store, the smelling of the spices. And it's, it's very sensory. Yeah. 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 Uh, so, but the thing is, I never really cared before um, about what exactly the Pleasant Company was going for. No. Uh, I read the books. I learned the history. I loved it. I got the catalogs. I was gifted these dolls. They were my, without a doubt, favorite objects outside of like various little magical things I kept in boxes. But what the company was marketing exactly and how they were marketing it and who these dolls were for were not questions that I asked until we made this episode. Mm. Um, they are called American Girl American dolls. American Girl uh, they came with specific identities rooted in explorations of American history, and they each have a book series. I mean, I think the stories are very in- engaging, but the catalog, <laughs> the catalog allows different ki- kind of access. And you have this sort of um, ability for the parents to feel a little bit righteous and moral for purchasing it because it's educational, quote unquote educational. So in that way, it also flies under the radar in a way that Barbie, for instance, can't. No matter how many careers you give Barbie, she's modeled like an adult woman. She's very sexualized. And um, her backstory is not quite so um, concrete. So she can she can morph, but she's never going to be the same kind of elevated educational doll the way the American Girl dolls were. So what is an elevated educational doll? How does the Pleasant Company make or at least attempt to make a doll that does more. We've got that coming up after the break. But before that break, we want you to know that we have one of my personal favorite pieces of swag we've ever created here at Civics 101, and it's a baseball hat, which may sound funny from a guy who never wears baseball hats, but this one looks really cool. It says Civics 101 on it. It's black. It's beautiful. It's organic cotton. And you're going to love it. If you give as a sustainer at the $5 a month level, you too can have this beautiful black Civics 101 cap at your disposal. Regardless of how much you give to our show, please know that it means the absolute world to all of us here. All right, thanks. We're back, and we are talking about American Girl Dolls. And Hannah, just before the break, you were going to tell me what it actually looks like when a company tries to do more with a doll. So what does that look like? Like, Where do they start? Well, the 1990s, I think the two kind of questions about the doll industry was some of the feminist critiques of Barbie, I think, were starting to emerge as more legible for a generation of parents that might have grown up with Barbie and the glamorous dolls and started to really think about whether this was good or bad for girls. This is Marsha Chatlin. Most recently, Marsha is the Pulitzer Prize-winning author of Franchise, The Golden Arches in Black America, but she also knows and thinks about a lot of things, so many things, Mm -hmm. a staggering array of things. So smart. So smart, and was kind enough to go down this American girl rabbit hole with us. And so you have all of these other types of dolls that are trying to 
fill the space that a Barbie doll can't. And so I think where American Girl fits in, it's a doll that is still very beautiful. It is reminiscent of a collectible porcelain doll, but it also has, I think, the comfort for parents who, even if they don't identify as feminists, who are concerned about how girls are playing with this historical content that is substantive and intellectual and is presented as historically accurate. So it allows for a kind of play that is very gendered, but is not as concerning as perhaps other dolls on that market. I mean, I think that there's something about an affluent um, consumer of the 80s. You know, by the time the um, American Girl comes out in the 90s, you have yuppie parents who are a little bit more socially conscious. So parents wanted to give their kids toys that were doing a little bit more than being fun. Like these toys are going to teach them something. So in the 1980s, we see this kind of explosion of material culture and we have relatively um, young parents who want to incorporate lessons and values of things like multiculturalism into the toys that their kids are playing with. And they grew up with the um, G.I. Joe, Barbie, uh, whitewashed toys um, overall. So um, American Girl represented this alternative. However, what's really important to note is that American Girl wasn't going after the parents. They marketed directly to the children. So they identified this part of childhood where there was a window for a new kind of doll. For 8 to 12-year-old girls particularly who were not yet um, going out shopping and, and having independent lives with their friends, but were maybe looking for something a little more sophisticated than the imaginary play of 6 and 7-year-olds. What's interesting about this, though, is that you know, sure, these dolls were sophisticated in a sense compared to Barbie or what have you. But they're, at least at this point, they're not radically multicultural. Like the company launches with three white girls. So I guess Kirsten is Swedish, so she's coming from another place. Samantha's an orphan, but she's also very rich, super privileged, and mostly unaware of that privilege. And Molly has, has glasses, but she's, <laughs> but she's also basically star-spangled. There's a lot of red, white, and blue going on in these books, literally. Yeah. And so I feel like the company starts with a fairly limited definition of quote-unquote American girl, right? Like, yeah. like you said, Justine, three white girls, two of which represent a kind of can-do American attitude, <laughs> right? You've got the pioneer girl, and you've got the girl starting a victory garden while dad is away at war. And then you've got your like basic ruffles and lace girly girl in yeah. Samantha. And I feel like it's also worth pointing out that Kirsten's story is set during the antebellum period, but it's definitely a pioneer story. So I don't think there's much mention of the fact that the nation was on the verge of being rent asunder by the Civil War here, or of racial re- relations. Kirsten is friends with a young girl of ambiguous tribal identity named Singing Bird, and Singing Bird's family is then forced off their lands due to pioneers, but it's still not of a ton of engagement with a non-white American identity. You know, it's just through her eyes that she's seeing. And Pleasant Roland, believe it or not, open, very open about the fact that she was going to hold off on releasing specifically a black doll to this the is market. wild. Yeah. Um, she's she quoted, was open. Sorry. Yeah, no, I agree. So like in the 80s, she's quoted in the Washington Post as saying, quote, I feel the company initially needed to get established financially before we could take the risk that may be inherent in presenting a doll via direct mail into the African-American market. Because typically, middle class black consumers do not purchase much from direct mail catalogs. 
Did she have like any evidence to back that up? Is that even true? Um, I I cannot answer that question specifically. I will tell you that Marsha talked to us a little bit about the way that products of all kinds were marketed to black consumers. And often that advertising was not what it should have been, right? It was like not appealing. Um, however, I think in this case, this is more an issue of perception of the market than anything else. Well, I mean, I think that this is the kind of um, market logic that sometimes um, can be proven wrong and sometimes is like a self-fulfilling prophecy. Well, you don't know if a black doll will be commercially successful on first run if you don't first run it, right? And I think that um, I'm curious if the market researchers at this time didn't understand that there was um, an affluent black consumer market that I think would have embraced um, an American Girl doll. I'm not sure if they would have embraced um, a doll whose storyline was tied to slavery necessarily. Wait, so is Marcia saying here that there is a doll explicitly tied to slavery? Yes. Addie Walker, and she starts as an enslaved person. Oh, wow. And then she and her family escape. So their first black doll is an enslaved girl. One of the very first scenes is pretty intense Yeah, in her book. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, first... Pleasant has to decide that the time, the, the market is right for Addie. One of the challenges, I think, for the Pleasant Company at that time and others is, can you introduce a black doll in the series? And can you imagine a world in which the presence of that black doll does not make the entire series unappealing? Because odds are there isn't a white consumer market for your black doll, but just the presence of a black doll in that same orbit could have impact on the larger brand. And that's the sad reality, I think, of how race plays out in a number of marketplaces. So that even if there is a white doll, the fact that there is a white and black doll could turn off some consumers to the brand. So the next doll to come out is Felicity Merriman, literally a patriot growing up in Williamsburg, Virginia, during the Revolutionary War. Also, Justine, do you remember this? Uh, Felicity's grandfather is an enslaver. No, I didn't remember that. Whoa. In the books, um, there are two black men uh, who, like, quote-unquote, work for her grandfather and are referred to as servants in the narrative. Um, But then there's a looking back section of a lot of these, or I think all of these books. Yeah, a peek into the past. A peek into the past. And in the peek into the past, history part of that, Felicity book, it clarifies that these men referred to as servants are in fact enslaved. Wow, I don't know what to make of the fact that I don't remember that. But yeah, I guess I... It's it's fascinating that it was sort of sanitized like that. Yeah. Um, and then only if you looked further was that revealed. Exactly. Wow. Um, and Felicity like definitely is not teaching us about enslavement in America, right? Yeah, no. No, obviously not. <laughs> yeah, but Addie, 1993, Addie Walker is released. And yes, like Justine says, uh, she is enslaved at the beginning of her book series. Yeah, And so I think that when we think about the other um, context in which the American girls, you know, are grappling with, whether it's, you know, World War II, whether it's, you know, the Gilded Era, um, there's something about it that feels... Um, more doable in terms of developing a narrative out of it. 
the the period of slavery is a little bit, I think, harder to do because it isn't a girl that is just reacting to the cataclysmic events around her. It's a girl who's deeply subject to the kind of harsh reality of the time. Does that make sense? So it's kind of like weird. And so I remember people being like, what is this? So um, Addie came, comes out in the fall of 1993. And I remember like sometimes on black radio I remember Addie being kind of uh, like roasted a little bit like what is this um, and I remember conversations among people um, about whether or not they would get their daughter that kind of doll so this is a debate that continues online and likely offline but I have seen it online to this day the question being really the first historical black doll that you release is an enslaved person. It's the kind of critique that sometimes emerges when a movie comes out that focuses on the experience of slavery and people say, well, I don't want another slave movie. Meaning, like, I don't want another representation of African-American history that's bound up into people um, being abused and exploited and having no power. Uh, I mean, I think there are many ways to look at that issue, but I think that... um, a doll becomes a really potent place for people to kind of work out these issues around identity and their own comfort and proximity to history. So all of the characters that these dolls represent, Nick, they face adversity of some kind. They're supposed to be teaching us about the challenging beats of American history and how they molded young people, especially young girls. Molly's dad becomes a prisoner of war and she has to ration things, for example. Kirsten, a pioneer, so that's just, you know challenging it's hard her best friend dies her house burns down um you know there's cholera right yeah (laughs) samantha as previously mentioned her parents are dead an orphan uh was maybe is i would love to know a perpetually compelling narrative and then and then also samantha does meet girls who work in a factory and are exploited and she gives a speech at one point about child labor felicity's growing up during the nation's treasonous break from england so that's tense but when you come to addie Again, in her introductory book, the overseer of the tobacco plantation makes her eat a worm because she missed it, which is just a different emotional tenor than all of the other books and and a power dynamic that we don't see in the rest. She has to endure things that um, none of the other dolls have to endure. So we witness her coming into enough self-awareness to realize she's an enslaved child. She's separated from her father and brother when they're sold. And then from her sister, when she and her mother escape the plantation, she's whipped. And so Marsha brought up this super reasonable question. How do you make a doll that's experiencing slavery? Like, that's just because if we understand the fundamentals of play as kind of fantasy and imagination, the harsh reality of slavery makes it just really strange, right? It feels incompatible. But I do think that there's something of value of saying, well, actually, you know, within the context of people being enslaved, they did have a space for joy. And there were ways that children crafted what we would call, you know, a childhood out of these circumstances. But that gets into like deep into existential stuff. That is like not the point. But I do think that the I think the time that it emerges in the early 90s is when African-American history and African-American studies was also really emergent as something that was accessible and knowable to a larger public. So I think that like if the doll came out, 
you know, 10 years later, I think people might have a more nuanced view of what the doll could do. But I think in the early 90s, it just wasn't very legible. Also, this is just interesting given the fact that the delay in releasing a black doll was supposedly due to market considerations. You know, what was the marketing aim in releasing a doll who represents an enslaved character? So I I think that from a market perspective, it may have been risky to start with the history of slavery. And at the same time, if we think about African-American girls living during periods of historical significance, I think that there will be a level of violence and a level of vulnerability regardless that I don't know if it necessarily like would make people feel that much better. Yeah, even with Addie, most of her story takes place in Philadelphia, which is where she and her mother settle after they escape from North Carolina together. And she, of course, encounters racism there, too, just in daily life, like at the pharmacy, on the streetcars. Yeah, uh, that's the the thing about Addie's books that I feel like we haven't really talked about yet, which is that, yes, she is born into enslavement. Yes, that is like a, a very important part of her story, of course. And here she is. Uh, dealing with everything thereafter. You know, here she is in Philadelphia and still struggling with a whole other element of racism and subjugation. And she has a conversation with her mother where she says, you know, don't you hate white people too, mama? Like, I hate white people, I think, you know? Questioned, having Uh, a children's book. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Uh, And... uh, Yeah, these themes of forgiveness, of... of, um of resentment, of healing, of freedom, like it's complicated in these books. Yeah. But I do think that there is a sense that representations of slavery are about representations of a level of humiliation um, and debasement that I think is really hard. That's really hard um, for people. That's really hard to grapple with because culturally our nation has done such a poor job in introducing people to the reality of slavery and its legacies that here you have the stall, it will be, you know, the object to project all sorts of complicated emotions. So what did Marcia say when you asked her about this? Did she think that American Girl did a poor job with Addie? Like, it just doesn't work. I think about this as a historian and as a parent. I don't know what I think, right? Like, I think that I, too, struggle with this because I do think that the more ways that we have to teach young people about the history of slavery, like, the better. Um, But I do think that, um, you know, there is a level of fantasy and play that is associated with dolls that I don't know if we have to rip away from kids. And there's something about slavery that is about a deprivation of human experience that I wonder how the doll can be a presentation a representation of that history and like do you have to dial it like when playing with kids in this type of doll do you then dial it back to say oh but by the way you know what I mean like she wouldn't have healthy teeth or she would have a nutritional deficiency right like and then you're like wow mom you just ruined everything Girl is is kind of challenging because it is trying to like do kind of serious history, um, but it's still a kid's toy. It is still a kid's toy. 
So how do you balance that serious history with a thing that you are trying to sell to children? And if you're going to call that thing American girl, what are you saying about Americanness and girlhood? We're going to try to answer all of that in part two of Civics 101's Deep Dive into American Girl Dolls, which you can listen to right now. But before you go, we here at Civics 101 also teach American history, and we do it for free. And by the way, we do have merchandise right now, but it comes along with a different kind of business model. Uh, Right now, the first 250 people who make a gift to Civics 101 will receive our brand new and rather cheeky, if I do say so myself, sticker. And you can check out the sticker and what it says at our website, civics101podcast.org. And we also have a hat. We have a Civics 101 baseball cap, America's favorite pastime. Anyone who gives at the $5 a month level, or if you're sort of an all-at-once kind of person, $60, Basically, we're saying if you support our mission of education and even occasional entertainment, consider making that donation and getting some pretty nice Civics 101 swag at our website, civics101podcast.org. By the way, off script, thank you. Really. Thank you. Thank you. It means the world to us. It's how we operate. All right. That does it for this episode of Civics 101. It was produced by me, Hannah McCarthy, with help from Justine Paradise and Nick Capodice. Christina Phillips is our senior producer. Rebecca Lavoie is our executive producer. Music in this episode by Brandon Moeller, Razor, Particle House, J.F. Gloss, Ryan James Carr, Peerless, Caro B. and Alleviate, OTE, John Runefeld, Daniel Ferdell, Arc de Soleil, Mark Torch, Meter, Era, and Chris Zabriskie. You can get more info about this episode, transcripts, lesson plans, and every episode we have ever made at our website, civics101podcast.org. Civics 101 is a production of NHPR, New Hampshire Public Radio.